Good morning. In today's headlines, residents in Lewiston, Maine are still mourning the deaths of the shooting victims in their town. Even so, they went ahead with a popular annual event for children. We have the story. Anti-Israeli rioters descend upon an airport in Russia, breaking into buildings and clashing with police. At least 60 were arrested. Israel enters a new phase of the war against Hamas terrorists. How will this expanded ground operation affect civilians in Gaza? A foreign policy specialist gives us insight. GOP lawmakers and presidential candidates agreed on one thing over the weekend. The Israel-Hamas war is a battle between good and evil. We have takeaways from the Republican-Jewish Coalition Summit in Vegas. Former Vice President Mike Pence calls it quits as his floundering presidential campaign encounters funding trouble and poll numbers fail to lift off. The COVID vaccine has left the lives of many in shambles. We hear how a community of vaccine injured has helped turn health and financial challenges into hope and purpose. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning. Also from me, I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Monday, October 30th. Yes, and we hope you all had a great weekend. And you know, Evelyn, there is just so much hope and resilience in our top news about Maine today, despite all that's happened. That's right. Isn't that just a pattern that the community is are the people that come together that provide that hope. Um, the people of Lewiston, Maine, came together over the weekend to mourn the 18 victims of the shooting that occurred there last week. Despite their pain, Lewiston residents decided to hold an annual Halloween event for local children. Here's the story. The suspect in the shooting rampage at a restaurant and bowling alley was found dead Friday evening after a two-day manhunt. Robert Card was found dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound in a box trailer by a recycling center. Residents of Lewiston, Maine, a city of 40,000, came together to honor the victims. Over 1,000 people came out to pay tribute. Christian, Jewish, and Muslim leaders spoke, reflecting the diversity of this small town. Reverend Gary Bragg spoke of healing. Remember to seek healing over relief. They're two different things. Relief is temporary. Healing is permanent. Pain is temporary. Healing is permanent. The service was also provided in sign language to honor members of the deaf community who were also victims of the shooting. They are directing us to come together and make a difference in this world. Lewiston had been under a days-long lockdown until the suspect's body was found. Citizens were determined to carry on a Halloween tradition for the children despite the situation. This city councilor lost his son in the shooting. I said to myself, we weren't shutting it down unless the city forced us to close down the event because of what happened. Uh, uh, I didn't want the community to not be able to have the event that we put on every year. Most of these kids don't understand what happened a few days ago. This is a big thing to them, and, and I wanted them to be able to have the fun, to come out and enjoy themselves, and not have to worry about what has happened in the world in the last few days. Yes. Mr. Walker is suffering now, but he is hopeful time will heal his wound. I have tough times, trust me, uh, the heart is broken, uh, 
It'll mend. It'll mend. 18 were killed and 13 others were injured in the Lewiston shooting last Wednesday. And hundreds of anti-Israel protesters stormed an airport in Russia's predominantly Muslim Dagestan region on Sunday. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the incident, which resulted in at least 60 arrests and the injury of nine police officers. The riot was sparked by reports of a plane from Israel arriving at the airport. The flight from Tel Aviv was quickly surrounded by an angry mob upon landing. On the tarmac, some rioters reportedly tried breaking into the plane. Here a suspect is surrounded by the mob. His alleged crime? Being Jewish. He says he's from Uzbekistan, but they don't believe him. They say he must wait until they make a decision on whether he is free to go. One mob member yells to get his phone. Here the enraged mob storms into the terminal building, carrying Palestinian flags, screaming Allahu Akbar. The halls are soon flooded as cries of God is the greatest continue. The enraged mob searches for Jewish people. They begin pulling doors open, frantic in their search. A woman seems to tell them that what they're looking for is not behind her door. Outside, the frenzied mob tries to flip over a police car. Here a crowd gathers outside a hotel after a Jewish man checked into it, reportedly shouting, show your face or we will come into the hotel and pull you out of there. Security forces closed the airport and removed the rioters. 20 people were injured during the riot before Makhachkala airport was back under control. Security forces say the passengers on the plane were safe. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Republican lawmakers and presidential candidates gathered in Las Vegas this weekend for the annual GOP Jewish Coalition Leadership Summit. House Speaker Mike Johnson, former President Trump, and a slew of 2024 contenders attended. One thing that all presidential candidates agreed upon was seeing the Israel-Hamas war as a battle between good and evil. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has some takeaways from the event. Former President Trump told members of the GOP Jewish Coalition Saturday the battle in the Middle East is a fight between civilization and savagery. He says America shares Israel's grief over the October 7th terrorist attacks and that those responsible will burn forever in the eternal pit of hell. Every single life that is lost in this conflict is on the shoulders of Hamas, Hamas alone. But the 2024 GOP frontrunner brought another factor into the equation. Iran, people don't want to talk about it. There can be no sympathy, no excuses, and no escape. The former president touted his record in the Middle East against ISIS, saying its territorial caliphate was dismantled in four months during his presidency, and that sometimes to have peace, you first need to have war. History shows evil only respects one thing, unyielding strength. Trump says times like this call for a strong U.S. president, military, and borders. A lot coming in from China. What's that all about? We have a lot of young, strong men coming in from China. I wonder what that's all about. I will defend our friend and ally, the state of Israel, like nobody has ever defended it before. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis pointed to recent actions he's taken to help Israel. He says it's in America's self-interest. The 2024 presidential candidate organized evacuation flights from Israel after the October 7th terrorist attack, bringing home around 700 people, mostly Florida residents so far. 
Florida also recently sent Israel two state-contracted cargo planes loaded with military equipment and donated relief supplies. DeSantis has moved to strengthen the state's business sanctions against Iran because of the attacks and increased law enforcement protection around Jewish schools, synagogues, Holocaust museums and other buildings. We've made it very clear in the state of Florida, uh, if you mess with our Jewish community, we are going to hold you accountable. He ordered a pro-Hamas group called Students for Justice in Palestine to be deactivated on Florida campuses. Do not have a right to give material support to terrorists. House Speaker Mike Johnson said he was moved by witnesses' accounts at the event and declared the U.S. will stand like a rock with its ally Israel. He decried atrocities carried out by Hamas and says the House is taking steps to assist Israel. They have no regard for life at all. It's demonic. We'll call it what it is. And we have to defeat it. The Republican House Speaker shared this message for the U.N. There will be a ceasefire only when Hamas ceases to be a threat to Israel. Johnson says he senses his fellow Republicans are inspired and feel it's time for a new beginning and a fresh start. The speaker says he believes God is not done with America yet and that he knows God is not done with Israel. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The United States sees an elevated risk of the Israel-Hamas war widening into a regional conflict. This according to White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who spoke on CBS Face the Nation yesterday. Sullivan added that the U.S. is doing everything it can to prevent this from happening. It comes as the United States carried out multiple airstrikes against assets in Syria. The U.S. is reportedly targeting Iran-backed militia groups in Syria after U.S. troops came under attack earlier this month. Attacks on U.S. troops were also made in Iraq, although no disclosure was made as to who carried out the attacks. Meanwhile, Iran's foreign minister spoke to CNN yesterday. He said his country doesn't want the conflict to spread elsewhere in the Middle East, but dismissed allegations that Iran has any involvement in aiding Hamas. The Pentagon said last week that the U.S. military carried out strikes on two weapons storage facilities in eastern Syria. The facilities were used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as well as associated groups. Israeli forces over the weekend started the first phase of a widely anticipated ground invasion of Gaza, a narrow strip of land where Hamas operates. House Speaker Mike Johnson said on Sunday he expects floor action this week to advance a standalone funding bill to support Israel. The move comes despite President Biden pushing for an Israel-Ukraine combined aid package of over $100 billion. We believe that that is a pressing and urgent need. There, there are lots of things going on around the world uh, that we have to address, and we will. Uh, but right now, what's happening in Israel uh, takes the immediate attention, and I think we've got to separate that and get it through. I, I believe there will be bipartisan support for that, and I'm going to push very hard for it. Biden has called on Congress to approve more than $100 billion in aid, but the bulk of the money would bolster Ukraine's defenses against Russia. The rest would be split among Israel, the Indo-Pacific region, and immigration enforcement along the U.S.-Mexico border. Johnson says bolstering support for Israel should top the national security agenda. This comes in the aftermath of the October 7th terror attack by Hamas terrorists from the Gaza Strip. Stay with us. Former Vice President Mike Pence out of the race for president. Will this drive more votes to his former running mate, former President Trump? A political analyst weighs in. And who's in control of elections? Is it voters or super PACs funneling dark money into the election process? 
an authority on campaign finance and advocate for democracy, shares with us his take on this. Welcome back. Former Vice President Mike Pence ended his cash-strapped presidential campaign on Saturday. Pence's surprise announcement at the Republican Jewish Coalition donor conference in Las Vegas made him the first big-name candidate to drop out. A recent report showed that Pence's campaign wasn't able to raise enough from donors and was struggling with debt. Pence didn't endorse anyone in his speech, but he did call on Republicans to choose a standard bearer that would, quote, appeal to the better angels of our nature. He added it should also be someone who leads the country with civility. Here's Pence on Saturday. So after much prayer and deliberation, I have decided to suspend my campaign for president effective today. Now I'm leaving this campaign, but let me promise you, I will never leave the fight for conservative values, and I will never stop fighting to elect principled Republican leaders to every office in the land. So help me God. Former President Trump responded to the news saying Pence should endorse him because he had a great successful presidency. More candidates could soon follow Pence in dropping out, consolidating the wide field of contenders. With more than a half dozen candidates, donors seeking alternatives to Trump have been reluctant to open their pocketbooks. And joining us now is political analyst and senior fellow at the Commonwealth Foundation, Lenny McAllister, to talk about the impact Pence's exit from the presidential race will have. Lenny, it's always great having you on. Good morning. Thanks for having me, as always. What impact on the GOP primary can you expect Pence's decision to bow out to have? If you look at the polling, very little. He was the the worst possible candidate because he had too many contortions he had to make in order to make it work. He had to be pro-Trump and support the Trump administration because he was part of the administration. He had to try to take credit for stuff as a vice president when we all know the vice president is one of the least known and least powerful positions. It's basically someone that has to support the agenda of the person at the top of the ticket. So we, he can't take credit for what the Trump administration did because it was the Trump-Pence administration. He, could, he was trying to thread that needle. Then he also had January 6th that he had to deal with. So he was trying to both be anti-Trump and pro-Trump at the same exact time. At least Nikki Haley had a little bit of distance being the UN ambassador than the vice president who willingly chose to be on the ticket in 2016, extolled Donald Trump's values as the type of leader we need over the course of four and a half years to then turn around and go on the campaign trail and say he's not principled enough to be president. And he just found that out when he announced the run for president in 2024. It was never going to work. I hear what you're saying, Lenny. It is a tough balancing act there in his messaging. But do you think that Pence's absence from the ballot will drive more voters to his one-time running mate? Trump? Again, if you look at the polls, probably not. It wasn't like Mike Pence was polling at 20% anywhere. He probably wasn't polling at 20% in Indiana, where he was a congressman and a governor. It's not as though there's going to be this seismic shift in people that were saying, well, it's either between Trump or Pence, and now I just got to go Trump. Somebody polling as low as he was still has Nikki Haley, still has Tim Scott, still has um, DeSantis still has Ramaswamy out there amongst others still in the race 
if they want to pick somebody other than Donald Trump, but kind of get on the quote unquote Trump train. Remember, that was supposed to be the DeSantis lane from the outset. Maybe if it helps anybody, it helps a Tim Scott who's been struggling. Maybe it helps a DeSantis who needs a new jolt in his campaign mojo. Maybe it helps them. Donald Trump doesn't need momentum from Pence to help him at the polls. Yeah, and I will point out here that Pence had about $600,000 in debt, and he had about $1.2 million in cash on hand coming into October. But why now did Pence jump out? Probably because he wasn't going to make the debate stage in a couple of weeks. And that would have been very embarrassing for a former vice president to not even be on the debate stage running for the presidency when he's trying to be the conservative standard bearer. Couple that with the fact that he probably heard from donors and the Republican establishment, the people that give the, the, the um, everything from volunteers to endorsements, people saying, you're just not doing enough. Look, Mike Pence had the, the conservative credentials. He never had the conservative charisma. And he's trying to be a Reagan-esque figure without the Reagan-esque charisma. It's not working, particularly in a time when Donald Trump is going to take up so much oxygen in the room and he's going to drive a lot of anti-Trump vote and pro-Trump vote. If you don't have that charisma and the conservative credentials to cut through that atmosphere, you're going to always lag behind. And that's exactly what Mike Pence went through. And this is a crowded GOP primary here. And are there reasons for candidates to throw their hat into the ring, even if they don't really think that their winning is in the stars? You can always get a cabinet position. You can always get a book deal. You can always launch another campaign. I mean, people forget that uh, Richard Nixon ran for the presidency, then ran for governor of California. People forget that Ronald Reagan gave a speech for Goldwater, then became governor of California. There are instances where, particularly in the modern times, People have nine political lives like cats. And just because you don't win the presidential race does not mean that you don't land someplace else and give yourself a second or a third shot to do something that you deem is meaningful in your political life. Well, absolutely. Being up on that debate stage can get a lot of media attention, can push their message out there. So I see what you mean. Lenny McAllister, Senior Fellow at the Commonwealth Foundation, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. God bless you all. The judge overseeing former President Trump's federal election case has reinstated the gag order she issued on him earlier this month. On Sunday, U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkan denied Trump's request to pause the order while his appeal plays out. Prosecutors from Special Counsel Jack Smith's office asked for the gag order. They say Trump has published intimidating posts on social media about prosecutors and potential witnesses. Trump now faces two gag orders in separate legal cases, the federal election case in Washington, D.C., and the civil fraud trial in New York City. Trump has argued the gag order violates his right to free speech. The most expensive election. That's what the presidential race in 2024 is shaping up to be. Earlier, I spoke with Dan McMillan, the executive director of Save Democracy in America, for more on the effects of super PACs, dark money, and the so-called Trump factor. Dan McMillan, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Kevin. Good to be with you. So why are we seeing a rise in super PAC spending? Because it's an opportunity. They're the best vehicle for people who want to throw unlimited sums to influence the elections to do so. There are legal limits to how much you can donate directly to a campaign, but a super PAC, if 
George Soros wants to give $10 billion to a super PAC or Charles Koch, they can do so. And that super PAC can spend unlimited sums buying advertisements or doing get out the vote efforts, whatever, to help a candidate they like or hurt a candidate they dislike, as long as they, quote unquote, don't coordinate with the campaign. Although the coordination rules are so loose that they do coordinate all the time. So basically, super PACs are a gigantic, are a loophole so big you can drive a truck through it. And it allows unlimited sums of money to flow into our political system and purchase influence in Washington. That's a lot of money. Do these super PACs have to disclose their sources? Well, they do and they don't. They do have to disclose the names of the persons or entities who donate. But an awful lot of the organizations that donate to them are dark money organizations. Usually the most of them are called 501c4s, which is a line in the uh, the tax code, the Internal Revenue Service, in a 501c4, and there are tons of these, uh, they do not have to disclose their donors. And so all kinds of people can be donating, for all we know, hundreds of millions or more, and then the dark money organization gives the money to the super PAC, and the super PAC spends it, and, and there's no accountability at all. And a little context to this, back in the midterms, according to Open Secrets, there was $115 million in dark money contributions, but only $3 million of that was reported to the FEC. So is this a challenge to Americans in trying to get their, their representation? It's more than a challenge, Kevin. Effectively, we have almost no representation anymore at all. Because this has been a, this problem is built since the 1980s, but the last three federal election cycles have shattered previous fundraising records. Now, let's face it, you need millions of dollars to win a seat in the House, tens of millions for the Senate. Joe Biden's finance chair proudly boasts they will raise more than two billion for this election. This money doesn't come from you and me; it comes from people who can write checks for fifty, hundred thousand, half a million, and more. And this means that their voices drown out ours. It also means basically that the donors by default select the candidates we're allowed to vote for because any idea or candidate that they don't particularly like doesn't get their cash, the campaign doesn't get off the ground, the media says this candidate is not viable and we the people never even hear your name no matter how good your ideas are. So Dan, just in 15 seconds, what's the Trump factor here spurring all of these increased contributions? Because, well, I think especially because the Democratic Party, so many Americans are absolutely desperate to keep Trump from getting another term. The bigger question is, why are both parties running candidates who are too old to be president? And why don't the American people have a choice? And it's partly because neither party has any bench strength. Because now, going into politics means becoming an overpaid telemarketer. All you do is spend your time on money raising funds for the next campaign. Neither party's got a whole lot to offer us anymore. The system is broken. The emperor has no clothes, and we are not going to get a real choice at the polls until we fundamentally break the power of the money and transform our system. Well, Dan McMillan, the executive director of Save Democracy in America, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Very interesting. And Dan McMillan, his organization, Safe Democracy in America, is nonpartisan, right? Yeah, they basically try to remove money from politics and support elections owned by the voters themselves. Right, and they do that through what's called democracy dollars.
Don't go anywhere, we're going overseas next. Israel steps up its offensive in its self-declared second phase of the war. We have the latest updates on the battle in the Gaza Strip. And the Czech Republic's defense minister has called for her country's exit from the United Nations. Find out her concerns and what she had to say about the UN after the break. Good to have you back. Israel's military continues to step up its offensive in the Gaza Strip. It's been three weeks since the war broke out. Israel has now declared the conflict is in its second phase. Heavy air and artillery strikes were reported in Gaza early this morning as Israeli troops and tanks pressed into the enclave with a ground assault. The Israeli military released footage yesterday of ground operations underway. The videos show, the videos show mostly armored bulldozers working. One officer was reportedly severely injured by a mortar shell and evacuated for medical treatment. The IDF says it struck over 600 Hamas targets over the past few days, including command centers, observation posts and missile launch sites. It said dozens of terrorists were killed after barricading themselves in buildings and tunnels. The IDF says its fighter jets hit military infrastructure in Syria and Hezbollah targets in southern Lebanon yesterday. The IDF says it was in response to launches toward Israel. Israel's military has also stepped up operations against terrorist groups in the West Bank. Israeli forces are expanding operations inside Gaza in the war against Hamas. Let's speak to David Wormser, a foreign policy specialist who served as former Vice President Dick Cheney's Middle East advisor. Let's learn more about this with David. David, great to have you on the show with us this morning. Well, it's great to be here. Do you think that one of the reasons why this expanded operation in this new phase is just limited and not a full-scale invasion is because that hostage negotiations have been at a stalemate? Well, I, I think partly the concern for the hostages always informs Israeli planning here. Uh, and it may not be the most militarily optimal way to do it, but they do want to first and foremost make sure that they're not contributing to the to the threat to the hostages. Uh, so, yeah, I think they're being very careful and they want to go through, go in more in salami tactics. But I think that at the end, they may still lurch and take the entire area in one swoop, or they may take it in many different little pieces. But I think if you listen carefully to what the Israelis are saying, I don't see uh, uh, Gaza remaining uh, uh, unoccupied uh, for the near future. They don't want to stay there, but they need to be on the ground to clean it out and uh, get all Hamas operatives in the end and find any hostages they can, alive or dead. So I don't think it changes the course of the war. It just changes the way it prosecutes it. Right, and U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is calling for careful consideration for the way that Israel proceeds here, given that Hamas terrorist infrastructure is embedded in these densely populated areas. So what do you think is the most effective strategy for Israel to move forward in their goals? Well, I think what they're doing, you see, also when they're moving forward incrementally like this, they do capture a lot of Hamas operatives, which provides a treasure trove of intelligence that then allows them to operate in the next steps to go in further with more knowledge of where the Hamas operatives are and where they, the, the terrorists have dug tunnels and so forth, and potentially even to have rescue missions that, uh, uh, against, uh, against Hamas to try to get uh, some of the hostages out. 
and and they would be launched from much closer to where the hostages are because the Israeli forces are right there. So I think there's a lot of utility with these uh, with this incremental expansion every day or two, uh, both in terms of intelligence gathering, safety of Israeli soldiers, and potential for hostage rescue operations. And that intelligence is critical in this type of conflict, given the secrecy of the way that Hamas operates, being underground and so forth. How will this expanded ground operation affect civilians in Gaza? Well, by now, all have been warned to leave northern Gaza. So I, I think who's left is either who wants to stay and face the consequences or maybe at gunpoint uh, be held uh, by Hamas as a human shield. And there's not a lot you can do about that that's a war crime it's it's one of the it's a, it's a horrible thing that hamas is doing and they bear the responsibility therefore they really are as eager to kill palestinians almost as they are jews uh because they like that they like they like the propaganda that comes with that so there's, but there's only so much you can do the, the real the real purpose therefore only redoubles the need to eliminate hamas as an organization and its operatives in jail or dead do you feel that a precision strike or these more compact ground operations can protect civilian life more than a full-on invasion? Well, yeah, I mean, a full-on invasion, the Israelis would be operating in areas where they don't have a complete picture of where all the terrorist tunnels are, where all the uh, strongholds are, and so forth. So they would have to use far heavier force, far more indiscriminately, to literally uh, raise what's in front of them to, to protect troops. And that would endanger civilians more. That would endanger uh, potential hostages more. So I think I think the Israelis are operating somewhat cautiously here for those reasons, to save Palestinian civilians and to save Israeli hostages. And based on your experience as an advisor, do you feel that the United States is doing well at its mission here to support Israel? It is, and the most important thing that it really needs to do is to provide diplomatic cover against these efforts to create a ceasefire which would be, in essence, handing Hamas a victory. It's in the middle of an attempted murder. You stop the, you stop the defender from defending himself. That, that helps the murderer. Uh, but on, at the same time, I think the United States is saying some things lately that are beginning to undermine the Israeli war effort. For example, this uh, statement they had about reestablishing communications. Internet is not a basic human right. And it is very useful for terrorists to communicate with each other. So cutting off internet is not something the United States should be crossing Israel on, but it did. So I, I think that you're seeing some elements of the administration not really uh, with the program here. Right, and to your point, we've seen Speaker Johnson say that a ceasefire is only possible when Hamas ceases to become a threat to Israel. David Wormser, American foreign policy specialist, thank you. Thank you. The Czech Republic's top defense official is calling for her country to leave the United Nations. It comes after the UN's central policymaking body approved a resolution drafted by Arab states demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. Czech Defense Minister Jana Chernohova said the resolution failed to mention the killings and kidnappings of civilians committed by Hamas. Chernohova said she was ashamed of the UN. She called it an organization that cheers on terrorists and does not respect the fundamental right to self-defense. Fourteen other UN members also voted against the resolution. However, it passed the General Assembly on Friday with an overwhelming majority. 
The resolution had opposition from only two other EU members, Austria and Hungary. The United States, Israel, Paraguay, and a group of Pacific Island states also opposed it. A Canadian amendment was defeated in an 88-55 to 55 vote. It would have strongly condemned Hamas's atrocities and demanded an unconditional release of all hostages held by the terrorist group. Well, and now the um, Palestinian UN ambassador calls the UN General Assembly, um, he uh, said, in, in their words, more courageous and principled than the UN Security Council that was not able to reach um, common ground yet. Yeah, well, I know the UN has its hands full with this conflict, and of course, Gutierrez, he took a lot of flack after he said that the terrorist attack and, and the subsequent response did not happen in a vacuum. Right. So. And um, we're heading to the break here. Coming up, the United Auto Workers Union fails to find agreement with General Motors during negotiations, but reaches tentative deals with Stellantis and Ford. Friends actor Matthew Perry was found dead in his Los Angeles home this weekend. Co-producers of the hit TV show share their thoughts about the much-loved actor. Cases of child trafficking and grooming are being uncovered in Hollywood. We spoke with an ex-Hollywood artist to learn about her experience in the industry. Welcome back. The United Auto Workers on Saturday expanded its strike against General Motors to include its Spring Hill, Tennessee engine plant. A move that could stall GM's large pickup production and increase its financial pain. We hear the report from Freddie Joyner. The United Auto Workers Union expanded its strike against General Motors following bargaining setbacks Saturday. A move that could hobble GM's large pickup production as well as assembly of other popular GM vehicles. It is not clear what derailed GM and the UAW's progress toward an agreement. But sources said pension costs and issues involving the use of temporary workers were among the points of contention. Today, we reached a tentative agreement with Stellantis. Meanwhile, United Auto Workers President Sean Fain announced a tentative labor deal with Chrysler owner Stellantis that mirrored one made just days earlier with Ford. The power of the stand-up strike cannot be understated. Over the 44 days we were on strike, Stellantis more than doubled the total value of the proposals they had on the table. Both the Ford and Stellantis deals won workers a record 25% jump in wages over the four and a half year contract and allowed the automakers to restart their profitable truck assembly lines. Fain is scheduled to meet Sunday afternoon with local union leaders from Ford to start the process of ratifying a new contract. GM is now the only Detroit automaker without a contract deal. The co-creators of hit TV show Friends say they're shocked and deeply saddened by the death of actor Matthew Perry. Marta Kaufman, David Crane and executive producer Kevin Bright issued a joint statement yesterday. They said they will remember Perry as a brilliant talent and someone with a giving and selfless heart who is always the funniest person in the room. Perry played the role of Chandler Bing in the long-running sitcom. The show aired from 1994 until 2004. It rose to the number one spot in its eighth season. Police were called to Perry's Los Angeles home on Saturday. The Los Angeles Times reports that Perry was found unresponsive in a hot tub. 
The LA Times says sources did not provide a cause of death, but said there was no sign of foul play. Matthew Perry was 54 years old. Moving on to a different topic, cases of child trafficking and grooming are being uncovered in Hollywood. I spoke with Landon Starbuck, a singer and the founder of Freedom Forever, to hear her experience in Hollywood and what she is doing now to help others. When I was 18, I was in the music industry. I was a billboard charting artist. And uh, as an artist myself, I started learning the ins and outs of the industry. And I was subjected to a lot of uh, situations where there would be a sexual quid pro quo, and I chose to say no. And as a result of that, I lost out on a lot of opportunities. But more concerningly is the younger children that were under 18 that are in the industry. I stopped writing um, for myself and started writing for others, Nickelodeon, Disney stars. I would sign NDAs. And the types of behavior that I would see allowed uh, in these studios with these adults and children uh, was very concerning. And what I now know, now recognize as grooming, but at the time did not have these, the, you know, words to vocalize what was happening. Now, because, well, these are channels or companies that have very young children starring for them. So when you say these type of, uh, types of behavior, what exactly are you referring to? So there'd be situations where parents would drop off their kids as young as nine years old to studios or uh, casting types of auditions um, where there would be producers, directors, um, musicians, uh, older uh, uh, stars that would be there with these kids. And there would be drugs. There would be a lot of inappropriate talk and behavior. Um, but I would see that parents would just leave their kids with these adults and that this would be going on. Um, then I would hear talk about, you know, people hooking up and things like that. And um, I never saw a child actually exploited or I would have called uh, 911 because I definitely knew that much. But I didn't recognize that these other things were signs of grooming, that it was inappropriate for a parent to drop off a child and leave them alone with somebody in a position of power who would then have drugs lying around and invite older kids to kind of groom them to say, hey, this is okay, this is normal. Now, you also say that this, all of this is part of a broader problem now. Can you please explain what you mean by that? Sure. Well, I always refer to Hollywood and the entertainment industry as essentially the marketing arm for the exploitation industry. What is modern day slavery, human trafficking? Because if there's no demand to buy children, to buy vulnerable people, to exploit, rape, to make videos of, to share and sell on the internet, then there is no buyers. There is no industry. And so the advertising in the industry is done by the industry, the, the entertainment industry. And I, one survivor said it best. She told me, that the industry or the entertainment world groomed her for her trafficker. So her trafficker simply exploited the vulnerabilities that were already there, but she had already believed that you're supposed to dress provocatively. She already thought it was normal for, for men to, to, you know, treat her as an object, um, you know, and look no further than the OnlyFans culture today with, with the sugar daddies and all that. These things have become normalized. You founded Freedom Forever. What's your mission there? Our mission is to stop child trafficking and exploitation in all forms, which includes the gender mutilation of young bodies um, and minds that is happening across our country. That's a lot. Now, where do you want to start that change? Well, we believe in something called the Freedom Model, which is based on education and prevention-based activism, because awareness is not enough. Education is not enough. 
Um, and we really need people's activism so that we can change the destructive policies that are grooming our children or harming our children so that we can have accountability for predators by advocating for harsher sentencing, quite possibly the harshest sentencing in the world. Um, and then we want to also provide aftercare. Um, you know, a portion of all of our proceeds go to a Freedom Farm safe home uh, for victims of exploitation and trafficking. So it's a holistic approach, um, but it is something unique that we do is that activism piece is so important. And it's not political activism. It's activism necessary to safeguard our children. Mm. Yeah, I think that's something that everybody can agree on, that children's safety is so important. So thank you so much, Landon Starbuck. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm just so glad that she's taking action on this so that other children don't have to go through that. Absolutely. And one of the things that really just came to mind, you know, I, I always thought it was kind of funny to if you compare like 90s kids and nowadays kids, the level of maturity they show versus, you know, kids back then. But that made me rethink that, <clears throat> excuse me, that maybe it's not actually that funny. It's actually concerning, right? Because now the normalization of you, you know, you see those kids doing those dances or, you know, they're losing the sensibility of catching that, those kind of moments that should actually raise red flags, like, she, like Landon said. Right, and, and what she was explaining here is this child grooming, that's just trying to lower their inhibitions so that they can achieve these devious ends, which is completely intolerable. Right. Well, um, we're heading to break now. Silenced, erased, and abandoned. Those who sustained injuries from the COVID-19 vaccine are left out in the cold, but they've banded together and are making an impact for the better. Thanks for staying with us. The lives of many individuals have been completely upended by injuries sustained from the COVID-19 vaccine. It's not just health challenges or financial burdens or feeling like their voices have been silenced, but also feelings of abandonment. But a community that they formed has helped them gain a sense of hope, purpose and belonging, allowing them to move forward and make an impact. Let's learn more. Here's my report from Port Orange, Florida. It felt like it was dying. I had been abandoned not just by friends, but family. Because if the vaccine injured don't help our fellow vaccine injured, it, we're not going to get the help we need. And that's part of medicine, you know, love and support. Meet Adam Rowland. Adam can barely walk more than 20 yards at a time now. He exercises his lungs regularly to rehabilitate them after suffering blockages in his lung arteries. But therapies, countless supplements, and medications weren't always part of his life, nor was immense pain. If I win the seconds, I'll win the minutes, I'll win the hours, and I'll win this day. It was cloud nine for Adam with fulfillment and financial security after 17 years striving to become a consultant on the PGA Tour. He was physical, had played professional rugby, and became head of medical at Super League in the UK, too. So my life before the vaccine injury was, it was perfect in every way. He took the vaccine to protect others. In 2022, the first dose went in. Then he had instant pain in his limbs, heart arrhythmia, palpitations, and non-epileptic fits. He got the second dose over a month later, Afterwards, he went straight to the cardiac ward with a dangerously fast heart rate. The doctors said it could be fatal. 
They didn't know the cause and later discharged him only for his health to keep deteriorating. The fits were just ridiculous in bed. I was going um, five days at a time, not sleeping at all. Um, felt like I was dying. In May 2022, Adam was diagnosed as vaccine injured. But he and his supporters say the UK couldn't treat him because the necessary tests, treatments and medications weren't available there to help him heal. He was trying to get biopsies on a muscle degenerating disease suspected to be caused by the vaccine. That was over a year and a half ago. And since then, I've just continued to get downhill. And they just basically abandoned me in my own country. Not being able to stand up, he couldn't cook for himself, nor could his mother with Parkinson's. Goodwill neighbors would bring him food through his bedroom window but the goodwill spanned the Atlantic, with Heather Hudson, author and mother of a vaccine-injured son, seeing his story on social media and reaching out. We call each other, we text, we, you know, we've become close. How has your relationship with Adam helped you through this tragedy? My relationship with Adam and my relationship with Michelle has helped me to have some semblance of, you know, bonding with other people that are in this. I had been abandoned not just by friends but family over what has happened and Michelle and Adam have filled those roles or like aunts and uncles to me. And that's how Michelle Utter, a vaccine injured former healthcare professional in the U.S., met Adam and decided to bring him to the U.S. for treatment. And when Heather said something about bringing him over, I didn't hesitate. I told her I would do it. Michelle flew to the U.K. She says she was furious Adam was being gaslit over his injury and unable to get treatment. Michelle told Adam she made him a promise she will never break. She's helped him in many ways, like preparing food for him and even preparing for him electrolyte drinks as a remedy. She even went so far as to offer him a shower chair so he could shower with ease. But as you can see, there is no shower chair here because Adam is determined to stand tall throughout his recovery and to help others going through similar situations and to bring this issue to light to help protect future generations. I'll speak to people in Denmark, um, Germany, all over the world. It's just the, the, the gestures that have just kept me going. It's, it really has made me think there is hope that, you know, something like this, there is a lot of people that are, you know, prepared to have good conversations. And, and yeah, it gives me hope that these things hopefully won't happen again. Dr. Eduardo Balbona has been an important figure in the lives of this group, providing treatment and bringing awareness to vaccine injuries. How important is the vaccine-injured community to recovery? I think it's been hugely important because suddenly they're not alone. All these, all these people here, they're not alone. There's thousands of them. And you can go and see that, that that person is just like me. Same thing happened to them. I'm not crazy. There's hope. They're going to get better. Looking for the doctor's office. Michelle brought Adam to New York to see a neurologist to get on a treatment program. As a result, Adam now has a prescription to IVIG, which is a product made from human antibodies administered through a vein. Adam is going back home to the UK, and then he'll return stateside for treatment. Great reporting, really good. I, and I think it's great what they're doing because just 
to be able to provide hope that's worth so much because that can change everything. Yes, that really helps the attitude. And you know, Adam's mental toughness is just one of the things really helping him get through that pain and just really great people. Yeah, absolutely. All right, thank you for bringing us that. And on that positive note, we want to kick off our second part of the broadcast. After hundreds turned out in to mourn Lewiston shooting victims, residents made sure an annual celebration for kids didn't get canceled. Pro-Palestinian rioters charged through an airport in the Russian region of Dagestan trying to hunt down Israelis arriving from Tel Aviv. House Speaker Mike Johnson expects action this week on an exclusive bill to support Israel in its fight with the Hamas terror group. Former Vice President Mike Pence drops out of the presidential race. Find out why the ex-candidate says it's not his time. UAW is expanding its strike against General Motors after failing to reach an agreement this weekend. What does it mean for the future of GM? An English teacher with a million followers on social media is the new ambassador for Ganjing World. We look at what her new job entails coming up. Good morning, and to those of you just joining us, welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning. Good morning also from me again. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Monday, October 30th. In top news today, the people of Lewiston, Maine, came together over the weekend to mourn the 18 victims of the shooting that occurred there last week. Despite their pain, Lewiston residents decided to hold an annual Halloween event for local children. Here's the story. The suspect in the shooting rampage at a restaurant and bowling alley was found dead Friday evening after a two-day manhunt. Robert Card was found dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound in a box trailer by a recycling center. Residents of Lewiston, Maine, a city of 40,000, came together to honor the victims. Over 1,000 people came out to pay tribute. Christian, Jewish, and Muslim leaders spoke, reflecting the diversity of this small town. Reverend Gary Bragg spoke of healing. Remember to seek healing over relief. They're two different things. Relief is temporary. Healing is permanent. Pain is temporary. Healing is permanent. The service was also provided in sign language to honor members of the deaf community who were also victims of the shooting. They are directing us to come together and make a difference in this world. Lewiston had been under a days-long lockdown until the suspect's body was found. Citizens were determined to carry on a Halloween tradition for the children despite the situation. This city councilor lost his son in the shooting. I said to myself, we weren't shutting it down unless the city forced us to close down the event because of what happened. Uh, uh, I didn't want the community to not be able to have the event that we put on every year. Most of these kids don't understand what happened a few days ago. This is a big thing to them, and, and I wanted them to be able to have the fun, to come out and enjoy themselves, and not have to worry about what has happened in the world in the last few days. Yes. Mr. Walker is suffering now but he is hopeful time will heal his wound. 
I have tough times, trust me, uh, the heart is broken. Uh, it'll mend, it'll mend. 18 were killed and 13 others were injured in the Lewiston shooting last Wednesday. Republican lawmakers and presidential candidates gathered in Las Vegas this weekend for the annual GOP Jewish Coalition Leadership Summit. House Speaker Mike Johnson, former President Trump, and a slew of 2024 contenders attended. One thing that they all agreed on, all the presidential candidates, was that seeing the Israel-Hamas war as a battle between good and evil. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has some takeaways from the event. Former President Trump told members of the GOP Jewish Coalition Saturday, the battle in the Middle East is a fight between civilization and savagery. He says America shares Israel's grief over the October 7th terrorist attacks and that those responsible will burn forever in the eternal pit of hell. Every single life that is lost in this conflict is on the shoulders of Hamas, Hamas alone. But the 2024 GOP frontrunner brought another factor into the equation. Iran, people don't want to talk about it. There can be no sympathy, no excuses, and no escape. The former president touted his record in the Middle East against ISIS, saying its territorial caliphate was dismantled in four months during his presidency, and that sometimes to have peace, you first need to have war. History shows evil only respects one thing, unyielding strength. Trump says times like this call for a strong U.S. president, military, and borders. A lot coming in from China. What's that all about? We have a lot of young, strong men coming in from China. I wonder what that's all about. I will defend our friend and ally, the state of Israel, like nobody has ever defended it before. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis pointed to recent actions he's taken to help Israel. He says it's in America's self-interest. The 2024 presidential candidate organized evacuation flights from Israel after the October 7th terrorist attack, bringing home around 700 people, mostly Florida residents so far. Florida also recently sent Israel two state-contracted cargo planes loaded with military equipment and donated relief supplies. House Speaker Mike Johnson said he was moved by witnesses' accounts at the event and declared the U.S. will stand like a rock with its ally Israel. He decried atrocities carried out by Hamas and says the House is taking steps to assist Israel. They have no regard for life at all. It's demonic. We'll call it what it is. And we have to defeat it. Johnson says he senses his fellow Republicans are inspired and feel it's time for a new beginning and a fresh start. The speaker says he believes God is not done with America yet and that he knows God is not done with Israel. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Hundreds of anti-Israel protesters stormed an airport in Russia's predominantly Muslim Dagestan region on Sunday. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the incident, which resulted in at least 60 arrests and the injury of nine police officers. The riot was sparked by reports of a plane from Israel arriving at the airport. The flight from Tel Aviv was quickly surrounded by an angry mob upon landing. On the tarmac, some rioters reportedly tried breaking into the plane. Here a suspect is surrounded by the mob. His alleged crime? Being Jewish. He says he's from Uzbekistan, but they don't believe him. They say he must wait until they make a decision on whether he is free to go. One mob member yells to get his phone. Here, the enraged mob storms into the terminal building, carrying Palestinian flags, screaming Allahu Akbar. The halls are soon flooded as cries of God is the greatest continue. The enraged mob searches for Jewish people. 
They begin pulling doors open, frantic in their search. A woman seems to tell them that what they're looking for is not behind her door. Outside, the frenzied mob tries to flip over a police car. Here, a crowd gathers outside a hotel after a Jewish man checked into it, reportedly shouting, show your face or we will come into the hotel and pull you out of there. Security forces close the airport and remove the rioters. 20 people were injured during the riot before Makhachkala airport was back under control. Security forces say the passengers on the plane were safe. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And for insight into Israel's military tactics, I spoke to David Wormser, a foreign policy specialist who served as former Vice President Dick Cheney's Middle East advisor. Do you think that one of the reasons why this expanded operation in this new phase is just limited and not a full-scale invasion is because that hostage negotiations have been at a stalemate? Well, I, I think partly the concern for the hostages always informs Israeli planning here. Uh, and it may not be the most militarily optimal way to do it, but they do want to first and foremost make sure that they're not contributing to the to the threat to the hostages. Uh, so yeah, I think they're being very careful, and they want to go through, go in more in salami tactics. But I think that at the end they may still lurch and take the entire area in one swoop, or they may take it in many different little pieces. But I think if you listen carefully to what the Israelis are saying. I don't see uh, uh, Gaza remaining uh, uh, unoccupied uh, for the near future. They don't want to stay there, but they need to be on the ground to clean it out and uh, get all Hamas operatives in the end and find any hostages they can, alive or dead. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is calling for careful consideration for the way that Israel proceeds here, given that Hamas terrorist infrastructure is embedded in these densely populated areas. So what do you think is the most effective strategy for Israel to move forward in their goals? Well, I think what they're doing, you see, also when they're moving forward incrementally like this, they do capture a lot of Hamas operatives, which provides a treasure trove of intelligence that then allows them to operate in the next steps to go in further with more knowledge of where the Hamas operatives are and where they, the terrorists have dug tunnels and so forth, and potentially even to have rescue missions to, uh, uh, against, uh, against Hamas to try to get the, some of the hostages out. And, and they would be launched from much closer to where the hostages are because Israeli forces are right there. So I think there's a lot of utility with, these, uh, with this incremental expansion every day or two uh, both in terms of intelligence gathering, safety of Israeli soldiers, and potential for hostage rescue operations. House Speaker Mike Johnson said on Sunday he expects floor action this week to advance a standalone funding bill to support Israel. The move comes despite President Biden pushing for an Israel-Ukraine combined aid package of over $100 billion. We believe that that is a pressing and urgent need. There, there are lots of things going on around the world uh, that we have to address, and we will. Uh, but right now, what's happening in Israel uh, takes the immediate attention, and I think we've got to separate that and get it through. I, I believe there will be bipartisan support for that, and I'm going to push very hard for it. 
Biden has called on Congress to approve more than $100 billion in aid, but the bulk of the money would bolster Ukraine's defenses against Russia. The rest would be split among Israel, the Indo-Pacific region, and immigration enforcement along the U.S.-Mexico border. Johnson says bolstering support for Israel should top the national security agenda. This comes in the aftermath of the October 7th terror attack by Hamas terrorists from the Gaza Strip. Coming up, former Vice President Mike Pence drops out of the presidential race. Find out why the ex-candidate says it's not his time. UAW is expanding its strike against General Motors after failing to reach an agreement on Saturday. What does it does it, what does it mean for GM's future? A million followers love her lessons. Now Ganjing World has picked her to be their kindness ambassador. Find out more about her when we return. Good to have you back. Former Vice President Mike Pence ended his cash-strapped presidential campaign on Saturday. Pence's surprise announcement at the Republican Jewish Coalition Donor Conference in Las Vegas made him the first big-name candidate to drop out. A recent report showed that Pence's campaign wasn't able to raise enough from donors and was struggling with debt. Pence didn't endorse anyone in his speech, but he did call on Republicans to choose a standard bearer that would, quote, appeal to the better angels of our nature. He added it should also be someone who leads the country with civility. Here's Pence on Saturday. So after much prayer and deliberation, I have decided to suspend my campaign for president effective today. Now I'm leaving this campaign, but let me promise you, I will never leave the fight for conservative values, and I will never stop fighting to elect principled Republican leaders to every office in the land. So help me God. Former President Trump responded to the news, saying Pence should endorse him because he had a great successful presidency. More candidates could soon follow Pence in dropping out, consolidating the wide field of contenders. With more than a half dozen candidates, donors seeking alternatives to Trump have been reluctant to open their pocketbooks. And earlier I spoke with political analyst and senior fellow at the Commonwealth Foundation, Lenny McAllister, to talk about the impact Pence's exit from the presidential race will have. If you look at the polling, very little. He was the, the worst possible candidate because he had too many contortions he had to make in order to make it work. He had to be pro-Trump and support the Trump administration because he was part of the administration. He had to try to take credit for stuff as a vice president when we all know the vice president is one of the least known and least powerful positions. It's basically someone that has to support the agenda of the person at the top of the ticket. So he, he can't take credit for what the Trump administration did because it was the Trump-Pence administration. He, he was trying to thread that needle. Then he also had January 6th that he had to deal with. So he was trying to both be anti-Trump and pro-Trump at the same exact time. But why now did Pence jump out? Probably because he wasn't going to make the debate stage in a couple of weeks. And that would have been very embarrassing for a former vice president to not even be on the debate stage running for the presidency when he's trying to be the conservative standard bearer. Couple that with the fact that he probably heard from donors 
and the Republican establishment, the people that give the, the, the um, everything from volunteers to endorsements, people saying you're just not doing enough. Look, Mike Pence had the, the conservative credentials. He never had the conservative charisma. And he's trying to be a Reagan-esque figure without the Reagan-esque charisma. It's not working, particularly in a time when Donald Trump is going to take up so much oxygen in the room and he's going to drive a lot of anti-Trump vote and pro-Trump vote. If you don't have that charisma and the conservative credentials to cut through that atmosphere, you're going to always lag behind. And that's exactly what Mike Pence went through. The judge overseeing former President Trump's federal election case has reinstated the gag order she issued on him earlier this month. On Sunday, U.S. District Judge Tanya Chotkin denied Trump's request to pause the order while his appeal plays out. Prosecutors from special counsel Jack Smith's office asked for the gag order. They say Trump has published intimidating posts on social media about prosecutors and potential witnesses. Trump now faces two gag orders in separate legal cases, the federal election case in Washington, D.C., and the civil fraud trial in New York City. Trump has argued the gag orders violate his right to free speech. A Hong Kong court has acquitted a Washington state senator, Jeff Wilson, of illegal firearms possession. It comes the condition that he said that he didn't get any trouble in the next two years. Wilson was arrested in Hong Kong when a pistol was found in his carry-on luggage. He and his wife had just started a vacation in Southeast Asia when the incident occurred. Wilson said he didn't know the pistol was in his briefcase when he left the airport in Portland. He noted that baggage screeners failed to detect the weapon. And in other news, the United Auto Workers on Saturday expanded its strike against General Motors to include its Spring Hill, Tennessee engine plant. A move that could stall GM's large pickup production and increase its financial pain. We hear the report from Freddie Joyner. The United Auto Workers Union expanded its strike against General Motors following bargaining setbacks Saturday a move that could hobble GM's large pickup production as well as assembly of other popular GM vehicles. It is not clear what derailed GM and the UAW's progress toward an agreement, but sources said pension costs and issues involving the use of temporary workers were among the points of contention. Today, we reached a tentative agreement with Stellantis. Meanwhile, United Auto Workers President Sean Fain announced a tentative labor deal with Chrysler owner Stellantis that mirrored one made just days earlier with Ford. The power of the stand-up strike cannot be understated. Over the 44 days we were on strike, Stellantis more than doubled the total value of the proposals they had on the table. Both the Ford and Stellantis deals won workers a record 25% jump in wages over the four-and-a-half-year contract and allowed the automakers to restart their profitable truck assembly lines. Fain is scheduled to meet Sunday afternoon with local union leaders from Ford to start the process of ratifying a new contract. GM is now the only Detroit automaker without a contract deal. Jennifer Lebedev is a longtime English teacher on social media. She's built up a massive following over the years. She's also known for her compassionate and positive approach to teaching her followers. Now she's been named Kindness Ambassador for the Ganjing World Social Platform. Hello, I'm Jennifer Lebedev is a YouTube English teacher. Her channel English with Jennifer has been around for 15 years. Her popularity increased over time 
and she now has 1 million subscribers. She attributes much of her success to positivity. She feels teaching English is her destiny in life. What's so funny, I mean, when I first started on YouTube, it was 2007, and the early years, 2007, 2008, you know, people would ask comments, you're pretty good at this, like, have you considered teaching? <laughs> like, yes, actually, <laughs> I have. <laughs> you know, I, have, I went to college, I got certified to teach, I've studied linguistics, um, yes, I do think about teaching professionally, <laughs> so... Um, I actually had a path where I thought I was going to be teaching Russian as a foreign language and then when I went over to do my graduate studies in Russia I started teaching English and then that's when I sort of pivoted and it was all for the best it was the path I was meant to be on I felt it the philosophy at the core of her videos is to treat the audience like close friends or family she sees her role as much more than just a gatekeeper of knowledge I have to be that cheerleader for some of my students who who um, you know, have their moments of self-doubt or frustration um, and, and tell them, you are amazing. Like, and people don't see how amazing you are because most of them haven't been in your place. They, they don't know the challenges that you're facing. Jennifer says what you put into something is what you get out of it and that your expectations can influence your experience. That's why she imbues her lessons with kindness, caring, and positivity. What you put out is what you get. You put out positivity, you receive it. You know, the people who are saying the world is awful and blah, 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 they're like grumbling and complaining. It's because they're putting out that negative energy, right? What do you expect to receive if that's what you're putting out? Mm -hmm. And I think as I've really tried to embrace uh, this positive mindset and say, this is who I want to be. I, there's different parts of me, but we choose which parts to embrace and which parts to share with others. Her message of positivity and kindness is evident in her considerable number of followers. She believes in the mission of Ganjing World and jumped at the chance when the platform invited her to be its kindness ambassador. So my message to Ganjing is it's a beautiful mission, hold on to your core and find the beautiful ways to sustain it. For me, it's been my interaction with people, with learners and other teachers, and that's what sustained me. And I'm so happy and blessed to say this goes back to the idea that if you put the positivity out there, the kindness, it should come back. The people that you'll be attracting should be like-minded, and that makes the journey all the more pleasant. It has for me. So nice to see these influencers that are trying to put a little bit of positivity in, you know, a sometimes really messy world on social media. Oh, yeah. Well, and Ganjing World is a really nice platform. They have some really cool videos, but I got one for you. Kindness called. It wants its smile back. Oh, wow. It took me a second there, but yeah, I got it. <laughs> All right. On that note, we have to wrap up our show now, uh, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.